0: I encourage you to keep your Bibles open in Matthew chapter 20. And this is what we've been really addressing over these last two months is us acknowledging that God works in us little by little, one step at a time, and that He gives us opportunities where we can come and we can address those moments in our lives that aren't the way that He would have them to be. And that this wouldn't be something negative or something bad or something fearful that we would look upon but that we would instead be able to embrace the reality of God desires to work in us, his people. Just give me one second here. Technology is great when it works. And they're not so great when it doesn't. You no, this is great because, you know, there's a moment in our text today where there is this really big moment of, like, being uncomfortable. Um, a bit of what the disciples actually do here with the question that they come and they ask Jesus. Okay, here we go. The title of our talk today is Serving the One Who Has Served Us. That's coming to a place where we begin to understand and comprehend that the one that we serve is the one who has actually served us first. So as we look at the context here of Matthew chapter 20, we see that Jesus begins this chapter by sharing a parable where he's teaching about the kingdom of heaven and how God is generous to save. And he shares a story about a master. And this master goes into town at various points during the day. He goes out to town in the morning, and then he goes out to town at noon, and then he goes out to town in the afternoon, and he is going to call workers that he needs for his fields. And so as he meets with the different workers throughout the day, the conversation is always the same. Would you come work for me, and here is what I want to pay you, do you agree? And the workers agree, always, they're going to get paid one denarius a day to work for the master in his field. The day draws to an end of work. And all of the workers come, and the master pays them. To the workers who work the full day, the master gives them a denarius. To the workers who work half a day, the master gives them a denarius. To the workers who worked just one hour that day, the master gives them a denarius. Wow. Guess what the workers who worked all day did? Any guesses? <laughs> yeah. They went to go speak to their union reps to figure out how they could get a raise. They started complaining And they come to the master and say, Master, this isn't fair. How is it that a worker who works for one hour gets just as much as us who have worked all day? And the master says, What is it to you what I do with what's mine? Did we not agree on the wages that you would work this day? And they said yes. And so he says, What is it with you that I would choose to be generous And Jesus uses this parable to teach his disciples that God is generous to stave. That in the kingdom of God, he saves people at different points, at different stages in people's lives, some when they are younger, others when they are older, some when they are single, some when they are married. Yet those whom God saves all gain eternity. There are no different levels or ranking or hierarchy in the kingdom of God. Whether you've been saved for 20 years or God saves you today, you have access to all of eternity, just like the person who was saved for 20 years. Amen? Praise God. And then, Jesus, in verses 17 to 19, if you have your Bibles open he is now going to describe how God will show this generosity. God will show this generosity because Jesus and the disciples are actually making their way to Jerusalem. And Jesus predicts for the third time that he will be arrested, beaten, mocked, and killed. And then on the third day, he will raise from the dead. Jesus is God's generosity to us, humanity, because it is through Jesus' death on the cross that we are saved and that God pours out his generosity upon us. Yet, (laughs) the disciples have other ideas. They have other grandioso plans for themselves. And this is where we find ourselves in our text, picking up in verse 20. Our first point, man's own desire, verses 20 to 23. Kids, you guys are rocking it today. Amen. In verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, all three of them come to Jesus. James and John would have been two of the first of the four disciples who Jesus had called, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. We see this all the way back in Matthew chapter 4. And now this mother comes with her two grown sons, and they all kneel before Jesus. This kneeling is a sign of homage and honor. It's a posture of reverence, acknowledging that Jesus truly is a king. And they come seeking permission to ask for a request. This would have been what was common when a subject entered the throne room of a king. The subject wasn't permitted to speak unless the king gave permission. That's what this mother and her two sons are doing. They're coming and they're, prosting, they're, they're putting themselves before Jesus in this posture of reverence because they have a request to make. And in verse 21, Jesus says to the mother, what do you want? And so she responds by asking Jesus to formally declare that her two sons, James and John, that one would sit at his right hand and that the other at his left. She wants the assurance that her sons will be given the highest positions of honor in the kingdom of heaven. She wants them to share in Jesus' prestige and power. And they, she wants her sons to be esteemed above everyone else. Awkward. The other ten disciples are there. They're listening in and they're watching what's happening and they're probably scratching their heads wondering what is going on. You need mommy to come speak for you? You need mommy to come and tell Jesus how special and how unique her kids are? Have you guys ever heard parents talking about their kids? Oh, my son's the best soccer player. He can kick the ball like nobody else can kick it. Now, he never hits the net, but he can kick it really hard. Right. My smartest, my son is the smartest kid. But he, but he, oh. This is how parents talk about their kids, right? And that's what this mother is doing with her kids. Clearly, James and John should have these places of honor. They should have preferential treatment. And listen, James and John are there. They're going along with this. They're not like, no, mom, stop it. Oh, mom, don't say that. No. They're like, yeah, mom, you, you say it. Make sure they know that last week I helped that little old lady across the street too. Mom is voicing the opinion of all three of them. She's looking to the future day when Jesus will reign in all of his glory, authority, and power, when he will rule over the earth. And she knows that this day of when Jesus will reign as king, it hasn't come yet, but she believes it's close. And now she is trying to position her boys to be at the front of the line. Are you with me? The first ones to be considered. She's putting in a good word for her boys. And though she has faith in who Jesus is, she has placed her faith in the wrong place. She believes Jesus will reign as king one day. But what she's really looking for is for her sons to be holding positions of royal honor and respect. And in verse 22, Jesus responds to their request. And now, instead of addressing this mother, Jesus specifically answers to James and John. And we know this because at the end of the verse, it is James and John that answers Jesus, not the mother. And Jesus says, listen clearly, You don't know what you're asking for. Guys, you've got it all wrong. You're looking for positions of splendor and honor. You want to be exalted and you want to lead. But this isn't the way the kingdom functions. These disciples have a worldly view of what it means to serve people. To ask this question, listen means these men do not understand the kingdom of God because there is no room for greatness for oneself. The kingdom of Jesus isn't about us and what we can gain. Jesus has been teaching. Again, that's why we talked about what comes before this. We call it the context so we can understand. It's like the scene that comes before in a movie of the one that you're watching. If you get up and go to the washroom and you come back, what is usually your thought? What just happened? Why? Because you weren't there for what just came before to understand, to give meaning to what's happening. That's why we explain the beginning of Matthew 20 so that we know. Jesus is like, guys, we have just been talking about God's generosity. And the way God will demonstrate his generosity is through my death. And here you guys are worried about being the vice presidents? Doesn't make much sense, does it? You guys want special treatment. You want status. Now listen. The disciples, they were so close to Jesus and yet they were still getting it wrong. They're still more concerned about what they can get out of Jesus than what Jesus will accomplish for them. Listen. These disciples are more concerned about what they can get from Jesus than what Jesus will accomplish for them. You see, the motivation of their hearts are in the wrong place. I wonder how many times I've prayed selfish prayers while God answered the exact same words as he said to these disciples. And he said, William, (laughs) you don't know what you're asking. William, we have no clue what you're talking about. It's possible to be really close to Jesus and to still get it wrong. Well, how? Well, because instead of focusing on Him and His Word and having faith in what He's come to do for us through His death and resurrection, we're more interested on the things that we would want Jesus Christ to do for us. Our motivation in following Jesus isn't coming to surrender our lives to Him, but it is instead to be self-centered. How can I get what I want from Jesus? This is a dangerous place to be. You care more about the gifts than the giver. You care more about the created things than you do loving the creator himself. You see, the problem many times isn't that we lack faith. You see, this mother had faith in her two boys, James and John. They believed that Jesus would one day reign in all of his glory and power. That he would establish his kingdom, but their problem was that they were unable to see how his kingdom would come to pass while having the right heart and desire. You see, their faith in Jesus is centered on their own selfish ambition. We don't say this, but we would all like to tell God what to do. And we all have a long list of the things that we would want God to do for us. That's how a lot of people view prayer. Prayer is your opportunity to bring God your list. God, can you do this and can you do that and can you do that and can you do this and can you do this? I'm not really interested in your will. I'm more interested in what I want you to do for me. As if God were a waiter sitting at the table waiting for you to say, Well oh, no, go ahead. Do you want to catch up with that? Instead, prayer is an opportunity for us to come to God because we know who He is. And we can speak it out through the truth of His word, and where we come humbly asking God, What is it that you want to do? And so then Jesus says to them, Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And some translations include, or to have the baptism with which I will be baptized. The version that we're reading, the ESV doesn't include that because the majority of the manuscripts of the past don't have it, but some of them do. What cup is Jesus talking about here? The cup that he will drink. And that he's asking the disciples if they will be able to drink of his cup. Well, Jesus is speaking of an Old Testament metaphor that was used many times to describe what it looked like to face suffering and punishment. They use this metaphor of drinking a cup as having to face suffering. One must drink of the passing judgment that they will receive. We see this in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 15. Look at what it says. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. God is telling the prophet, you you take this cup of judgment and you give it to the nations. And the nations are to drink of it. This punishment and suffering that I want to bring upon them. Jesus now uses this metaphor of drinking the cup to describe the suffering that he has just talked about in the previous verses. Like, I want to encourage you. I don't have it, but but look at verses 18 and 19. He's talking about arriving in Jerusalem. They're making their way there and what he's going to have to face. And he's saying, do you guys think you can drink that cup? Because that's the cup that I know that I'm going to have to drink. And Jesus speaks of this same cup again when he arrives to Jerusalem after the last supper that he has with his disciples and now he's in the garden of Gethsemane and he says in Matthew 26:39 look at what he says as he's praying to the father knowing that he's going to be arrested in the next few moments and going a, letter, a little further from there he fell on his face and prayed saying my father if it is possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knows this cup means his death. Can James and John face this cup of suffering? No! Are they able to carry the sin and the weight of the world on their shoulders? No! Yet, look at how they answer. What do they say? Look at the text. We are able. Oh no, Jesus, we can do it. Listen, sometimes the best thing to do is to be quiet and not answer quickly. You guys see it in the text? We are able. No, we, no, we, can, we, 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 can, we can drink the cup that you're going to drink. They respond without hesitation immediately and they have no clue of what Jesus is speaking of and of what Jesus is going to face. Because even though Jesus has already told his disciples three times that he's going to be arrested and that he's going to be beaten and to die, they still have no clue what he's talking about. We're able, Jesus. We can do it. Let me ask you a question. How many of you know that there is a difference between what someone is saying and what you're hoping to hear? Do you understand the question? I think what you're saying is what I want to hope to be hearing. And this is exactly the problem of the disciples. I have been guilty of what is called many times selective hearing. You know when we just want to hear what we want to hear, and then we pretend like we didn't hear whatever else was said? The disciples have this problem. Jesus has told them three times that he's going to die, and they've never heard that, but what they've seen from themselves are positions of honor and power and authority to command over others. Interesting. Interesting. They have this amazing ability to completely ignore the fact that Jesus is going to die. And I want you to think with me. Who wants to be the commanding officers of a general who is telling you that he's going to die when he goes into battle? (laughs) Who? Jesus says, I'm going to die. Okay, Jesus, let's go. Because, you know, I want to sit in the seat of power next to you. Let's do this. No one in their right minds would sign up for that. Yet this is the way we are many times ourselves. Instead of focusing on what Jesus says in his word to us, what what we focus on instead is what we want Jesus to do for us. Just like the disciples. We hear what we want, and then when we don't see God doing what we ask, we get frustrated. Oh, God, but why didn't you do what I asked? Well, whoever told you God was going to do what you thought you asked him to do for you anyway? A lot of times we talk about this stuff. God, make me rich. Don't ever pray that prayer because God's not going to make you rich. God, pay my bills. No, you pay your bills. And we assume... That God needs to do what we ask as if we're God and he were our servant. When the reality is, it is the other way around. We've said this here before at Centerview Church and we'll continue saying it. There are things that God will never do. So don't bother asking. And the way we know that is we have his word to lead us and to guide us. Amen? You know what I love? In all of the Bible, especially you start reading in the book of Acts, you know, the apostles, they begin to face persecution from the religious leaders because the religious leaders don't like that they're preaching the name of Jesus Christ. They never ask God when they pray not to face persecution. You know what they ask God? God, give us the boldness. We're going to go through this next week starting. Give us the boldness in the courage in the face of the problem not to shrink back but to continue preach the name of Jesus. We go around praying, Lord, take away persecution. Lord, we don't want to suffer. You never see that in scripture. What you see is saying, Lord, we know we're going to suffer. We know that for your name's sake, we're going to have hard days. But when those hard days come, give us the boldness through your Holy Spirit to not shriek back and be afraid, but to instead look at people in the eyes and stand firm in what we choose to believe. You see, we think that God saves us so that we can have an easy, simple life. No problems or or difficulties. That's not what God saved us for. We're going to see a little bit later that God saves us because he wants us to serve him. Not for our own ends, but for his. My wife has told me sometimes when I get serious like this, I look mad. I'm not mad. It's just the way I speak. I'll try more to smile. Verse 23. We see... That Jesus does predict. He does tell James and John. You guys will drink a cup like mine in the future. So Jesus does tell James and John that there are difficult days that are coming for them. But that it's not up to Jesus to determine who will sit at his right hand and at his left. That it's actually God the Father's decision who will sit at Jesus' right and left hand. Why? Because God is sovereign. And whom will sit at Jesus' right and left hand is not up to the Son, but it's been decreed by the Father. We see Jesus talking about here, understanding what we call sovereign will. God is in control. And God knows who those seats will be for, but it's not for Jesus to determine or decide. Actually, these disciples shouldn't be asking that anyway. It's not their business who will or who won't. what they should be preoccupied instead of is what's coming in Jerusalem. That's where their minds and their hearts should be. Jesus has been warning them. Jesus has been trying to prepare them. The motivation of their hearts shouldn't be on seeking power. But instead, they try to understand the suffering that is coming. And look, in the short term, All 12 disciples will fail at this. In the moment of suffering, when it comes, they won't be ready. After Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane about this cup of being passed, but God's will over his own will, he raises up after his prayer, and as he begins to walk, Judas comes with the religious leaders, servants to arrest Jesus. And guess what all 12 disciples do? They abandon Jesus. They are not willing to suffer with him, are they? We are. Talk is cheap. But in the long run, the disciples will suffer. And they will suffer much. We actually know that from Scripture, that in Acts chapter 12, this James is killed by the sword by the governor, Herod. That because of The New Testament church starting and the word of God being preached. It says in Acts chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 this. And about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. The idea here of being killed by the sword is that Herod beheaded James. So he would have his cup to drink one day. We don't have anything recorded in the Word of God in Scripture about what happens to John. But we do have records from historians from the 2nd and 3rd century that write about John. That he was arrested for preaching the name of Jesus Christ. And that when he was arrested by the emperor, because preaching that there was another king other than the emperor was a capital crime. You couldn't go around saying, there is another king in the land. When the emperor was king over Rome. John is arrested. And the emperor says, boil him to death. But guess what? John doesn't die. And so the emperor exiles him to the island of Patmos. And he's taken to this desolate island where now he will spend the rest of his lives working hard in the quarry mines. The emperor will die, and it's there on the island of Patmos, where God gives John the revelation of what we call the last book in the New Testament, the book of Revelation. In his old age, he's finally allowed to leave the island, and he dies in Ephesus. So these men will face their cup one day. But they cannot face the cup that Jesus is to face. My second point, God's kingdom. There are men's desires, but then there is God's kingdom. Verses 24 to 27. Now in verse 24, of course, the other ten disciples are indignated. They're not happy. Can you imagine? These brothers think that they somehow would be Jesus' first choice for a coi- for co-joined vice president nomination. The ten are furious with James and John. And you know what the funny thing is? This isn't the first time this has happened. If you look at Matthew 18, verse 1, this is what it says. Look. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying... Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So Jesus, tell us, which one of the 12 of us is the best? Can you imagine how awkward that is? Jesus, we've been discussing this amongst ourselves, and we're trying to figure out, out of the 12 of us, which one would you pick first? You Listen, if if you have kids, if you plan on having kids one day, never answer those questions from your kids. You get what I'm saying? because sometimes kids will say, "Well, you know, you like them more than you like me. Or you let them do it and you don't let me." And your kids are trying to say, "Oh, you think they're better than I am." And the disciples have constantly put themselves in a position where instead of thinking like the principles and values of the kingdom of God, they think like the world. Jesus, which one of us is the best? Who's the greatest? Which one would you pick to take over for you one day? This wasn't an important matter to them. And now in chapter 20, we see this practically bla- being played out by two of them coming up and blatantly asking to be the top two guys. You have to have guts to do that, no? Like, you need to know that after this, it's very likely that the ten are going to be like, so... Tell me, what were you thinking? And before an argument breaks out, Jesus intervenes in verse 25. Before they start arguing amongst themselves because of what just happens, Jesus brings humble clarity to his followers. He gives them a definition of what greatness looks like in the world around them. And Jesus says, just look. Look around you. How do the leaders of nations, how do they rule over people? How do those who lead use their authority? And Jesus says that they they lord it over. Right? The, the, The reason why people seek power is so that they can selfishly do and use the people to do what they want. And Jesus says, when you look around the world, this is how you see the power structure. Now, you need to understand this. The Jesus is pointing here to the Roman Empire. This was the power structure of their day. And he's saying, look at the Gentiles. Look at how these people who don't know God and how they lead. This is still very much true today that people use their power for their own gains and means instead of serving the people that they're supposed to. How many of you guys know what I'm talking about? The number one reason people want power is so that they can bring upon their agenda. Lord Acton is quoted as saying this. Power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. Why? Well, because power and authority over people have the tendency to lead the leader to pride. The person who exercises authority becomes morally corrupt, looking for more power and ways to hold on to that power instead of serving the people. You see, people, even in our society today, they view greatness through self-assertion. You know what was the first thing that Elon Musk did after the sale went through for uh, for uh, Twitter? He walked into the front door with a sink. And he fired his top three executives. Why? Because our world says, "I'm the top dog," and I have been hired to make the hard decisions, and I do what I want. You'll hear people say, I've made sacrifices that nobody else has sacrificed to get to the place where I am, to do what I want. This is pride. I'm not sure what he was thinking about bringing a sink into the building. I think there were lots of them. But there's probably something there. Here's the issue, though, for Jesus. His disciples are seeking this kind of power and authority. This is what they want. And Jesus says, that's how the world leads. But then look at verses 26 and 27. Jesus says to his disciples, Don't be like the world. It shall not be so among you. I don't want you acting that way. Do you guys see that in the text? He clearly says, this is the way the world does it. But this is not the way that we should do it. The request from James and John makes, the request that they make reflect the values of the world and not the kingdom of God. The disciples are not behaving the way that they're supposed to. There is no place for a worldly approach in the church. Do you hear me? There is no place for the way the world thinks among us. So Jesus defines now what greatness according to the kingdom of God looks like. And now he's not just speaking to the 12 of them. He says clearly... Whosoever, you know what, you know who that includes? Who? Everybody. Whosoever. So, like, I'm not just talking to the 12 of you, I'm talking to every follower of Jesus and every disciple. I'm talking to everybody. Whosoever wants to be great must serve. Say, serve. In the kingdom of God, greatness is demonstrated by your willingness to be a servant. The Greek word for servant here in the text is the word diakonos. And it means one that executes the command of a king. Who is our king? Jesus Christ. We are servants. And we don't go around doing what we want or we think. We take our commands from our king Jesus. And we do what he tells us in his word. What God notices is the person who looks to obey Jesus and to serve him by going out of his way to meet the needs of others. A servant is someone who knows that they have a mandate from their superior and they desire to carry it out. Then in 27, Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must be a... What do your translations say? Mine says slave. The Greek word for slave is doulos. And it means someone who gives up their own interests for the benefit of another. A slave is someone who puts the need of another person before their very own. It's to regard another person's needs as more important than ours. This is what Jesus is calling his disciples to and us. We as followers of Jesus do not and should not operate in the same manner as the world does. We should never do things to be able to get ahead for our own self-interest, but instead to look for ways of how we can serve Jesus and those around us. Jesus does not save us to give us a better life. He saves us in order that we would serve him. You see the power structures of the world are not to be found among us. We see Jesus teaching what we call the great reversal. Jesus said if you want to be first, then be a slave. And Jesus has already mentioned this twice in 19:30, chapter 19 verse 30 and chapter 20 verse 16. That the first will be last and the last will be first. Does that make sense? If you want to be first in the kingdom, then be a slave to everyone. The way up is by going down. In the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as being top heavy. Do you know what that means? That the leadership structure starts from here and it works its way down. No, no. It's the opposite. You serve. You do whatever it is you need to do, and you don't wait to be asked. Do you know that I used to skip school in high school to go clean the toilets of my church? Kids, don't do that. And no one say, say, well, because, you know, William said so. I could skip school. We don't have toilets you need to clean, just so you know. We rent a facility here so somebody cleans them for us. But do you see yourself as a servant and a slave of Jesus Christ? That in this great reversal, that God calls us his slaves and that we're called to obey him. And let me tell you, guys, this is radical. This is biblical, but it's radical. Nobody likes or wants to be a slave. Right? In my culture that I grew up in, my Portuguese culture, you'd hear this. I slaved myself today. Cooked and cleaned for you. And yet this is exactly what Jesus is calling us to as his followers. When it comes to leadership in the kingdom of God, we don't lead like the world does. We don't take our cues from organizational structures of this world. I want you guys to listen clearly now, please. It's really important that you understand this. I am not the CEO of this church. Did you hear me? Nor should I be operating like one. I'm a servant to all. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. And I do not get a say. He does. You see, I'm a servant. I don't do what I want to do. I do what Jesus Christ commands me to do. This is not my church. This is Jesus Christ's church. You are not my people. You are his people. I am not the one building this church. Jesus Christ is, I am simply a slave who has the joy and pleasure to come alongside my Savior and Master and to do what he asks me to do. The question is, do you see yourselves like that too? You see, people think that leading is easy. But when you lead like this, the way Jesus calls us to, it's not. Going around telling people what to do is very easy, isn't it? But Jesus says, in my kingdom, that's not the way things function. Are you a slave of Jesus Christ? And then we get to our last verse and everybody says, amen. Praise God. Wrap it up, pastor. Wrap it up. Jesus doesn't want the disciples to have some kind of vague idea of what it looks like that he's telling them. And so he gives them a very practical example. How many of you guys know that the most important thing sometimes that we need is to be able to have a visual, something to be able to point to, to say, Oh, that's what it looks like. So that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Because sometimes things just can be very vague and abstract, and we might not know what that looks like. And so Jesus says in the last verse, in verse 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for money, for many, not for money, no, for many. Jesus calls his disciples to be slaves and to obey him. And why should we be willing to do this? What should be the motivation of our hearts? Jesus says, my example. This is the final point, Jesus' example. Jesus presents himself as the model of slave that the disciples are to follow. He uses his favorite self-designation as the Son of Man, referring back to the prophecy in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, as the one whom the Ancient of Days, God the Father, would give over all authority and all power. And yet Jesus comes having the authority and the power of the Father, and yet he demands that no one serve him. He does not treat the people around him as if they were his subjects who come into his throne room, into his king, into His castle, where he's going to be telling his subjects what to do. No, no. Jesus says that he has come not to be served, but to serve. Jesus didn't come to be a king sitting on his throne in a castle to tell his subjects what to do. He came to do the exact opposite. This would have been revolutionary and foreign. It would have been radical for the disciples to understand that a king would come to serve. And yet this is exactly Jesus' point. Jesus is a king like no other king. He's the kind of king that humbles himself and puts the needs of others before himself. And listen, the disciples would have had many vivid images of what Jesus was saying here. Because for the last three and a half years, they have been following Jesus and they have seen him preaching the kingdom of God, forgiving sins, caring for the marginalized, like the lepers, healing the sick setting people free from demon possession, raising the dead, eating with tax collectors and sinners, meeting people in the middle of the night, going out of his way to meet women and to care for them, protected a sinner who was going to be stoned, fed multitudes, blessed children, taught using stories and illustrations so that people could understand and identify with what he was saying. Jesus put others and their needs first. He had compassion. He loved. He served. He made time for people. He made himself available. I don't know if you ever get a sense, but Jesus never seems to be on the clock. You never hear Jesus say, well, you know what? It's been an hour. And that's all we've booked for today. So maybe we can leave the rest of your concerns for next week. Speak to my secretary on the way out and book an appointment. And don't, remember, don't forget, credit card or MasterCard. What about us? And then Jesus actually tells us what his greatest act of service is at the end of the verse. His ultimate act of service was to be able to take, which was be, which he was working towards as he was arriving in Jerusalem, that he would come to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is now sharing his purpose again with his disciples. He has come to ransom many people through his own death. And please stick with me, I know I talk long. But it's important that we understand that this idea of ransom, it speaks of warfare in the past, throughout history. And it speaks about how a price has to be paid in order for a captive person to be free. And your enemy says, if you want this person back because they are a POW, a prisoner of war, you have to pay this. That's what a ransom is. It's to make payment for something you want in return. But you won't get it back unless you pay whatever is demanded. Later on in history, we see that this same kind of idea of ransom is used when it comes to slaves in the New Testament. Slavery was common. The rich could purchase people and their children to serve in their homes, to serve in their fields, and in their places of work. And there would be slaves who desired to seek out their own freedom. And so there was what we call, there were many forms of how a slave person could go about gaining their freedom. But one of the ones that relates specifically to the idea of ransom is called sacral Manumism. And the idea of this was that the slave would go through the complicated process by going to the temple of the gods and requesting that the gods purchase them. That now they would no longer be owned by their slave owner, but now they would belong to the god. And now because they belong to the God, they would be free within society. This is the language and image that Jesus is using here of what he has come to do for us. You see, the word of God clearly says that we were slaves to sin. And that we were condemned to death. And yet Jesus comes... And he says, I'm willing to pay the price to ransom you back. And the price that I'm willing to pay is my own life. That Jesus comes to be a ransom for many. He comes to face the wrath of God. And listen, you better understand this, that the Bible clearly says that there is not one who is righteous, not even one. That we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That there is nothing that any of us can do that deserves God's mercy and grace upon us. Nothing. That there are no acts of kindness and goodness that we can do to deserve or or, or, or receive our own salvation. Nothing. But we need someone who comes on our behalf. Someone who can pay the surmountable price, the cost, for our ransom, our payback. And Jesus says, this is why I've come. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to pay the cost so that you could be free from the power of sin and death. Oh, praise God. That was a perfect point there for just someone to say praise God. Stand with me. Jesus bought our freedom through his death. And we know this even from the beginning. Jesus said this right from the beginning. We see this at the beginning of Matthew in chapter 1, verse 21. When the angel comes to Joseph as Mary is betrothed through the Holy Spirit and Jesus has been conceived in her womb, the angel tells Joseph clearly, Matthew 1, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sin. And now Jesus is saying, I have come to save you from your sin. And I'm going to give my life and to pay. This is what Jesus has come to do for us. This is how Jesus has come to serve you. The question is, is will you and I follow in his footsteps? Are you willing to be a slave for Jesus Christ? We get this beautiful picture in Philippians chapter five, chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. And it says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ is our example of service that we are to follow. I want you to know here at our church, we've talked about this so often, Christine and I, we want to move away from using the word volunteering at our church because we don't see the idea of volunteering anywhere in the Bible the only place we see volunteering in the Bible is in the old testament when the men of Israel volunteer to go to war but when it comes to serving the language we always see throughout the Bible and even in the new testament is that we are servants of Jesus Christ we don't do God any favors by volunteering I want you to know something clearly. If you're here and you're not serving Centerview Church, you should. If you're here and you're not doing anything, you should. Because we have been given the supreme example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and now we are called to do the same. He laid down his life. I think the least we can do is give God a few hours a week. You know, it's funny. It's funny. You talk to people when it comes to volunteering and it's like pulling teeth. Okay, if you ask. Okay, pastor, sure, no problem. I'm only doing this because I've been asked. But the reality is I show up late and leave early. So it's going to be really hard for me to serve. Do you understand that you're a slave of Jesus Christ? You're not called to have power and authority, but you're called to lay down your life just like he did? See, our service to Jesus so often is disconnected from his sacrificial example in our behalf. And so you and I, we become unwilling to sacrifice ourselves. We're talking about unselfish service, putting God, the needs of others, and of our church before our very own. Aren't you glad that when the Trinity was in heaven, that they weren't talking about who wanted to come to die for the sins of the world. And they're like, no, no, you go. No, 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 you go. And Jesus was like, okay, I'll go. You know, if nobody else wants to, Father and Spirit, if you guys don't want to go, I'll go. You know what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 and 2 says? That Christ Jesus came out of joy joy to die on the cross with joy to give up his life for us should we not be willing to do the same for our master and king jesus christ father god we thank you for your word this morning we pray that it would minister to our hearts deeply understanding that we live in this world but that we are not to follow the values of this world when it comes to seeking our power and authority that we should not be bickering amongst ourselves about who is the greatest or who is the best. That is not what you call us to, Lord. That in reality, when we do so, we actually misunderstand your generosity. But in that, your Son willingly came to serve us and not be served. Then he served us by going to the cross to pay our ransom so that today we could be free from sin, guilt, Shame and condemnation and we can joyfully come to you. But Lord, you don't just save us so that we can have a better life. But you save us so that we would serve you. And Jesus, God, you give us the perfect example. You laid down your life. You died on the cross. You took the weight of our sin. Lord, the least we can do is serve you the same way. To give you our time to give you our energy, to give you our resources, Jesus, because you didn't hold back. You gave us all that you had. Lord, I pray that we would be servants just like, that we would be slaves just like our King Jesus. Amen.